0: Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Democracy Now!, NPR, Slate.com, and Car Talk. Today's episode uses a perfectly reasonable and appropriate amount of foul language while discussing a rather foul topic.
1: Indestructible and destructive myths in current circulation tells us that workers for the big three Detroit automakers earn on average more than $70 an hour in wages and benefits. On December 3rd, the falsehood was repeated on ABC World News when reporter Chris Bury singled out the United Auto Workers. Quote, The union did not offer to give back the big stuff, pay and benefits that remain a fundamental problem. Ford, Chrysler, and GM pay union workers more than $70 $3 $3 an hour in wages and benefits. Japanese plants here shell out just over $44. For GM, that translates into $1,500 more per car than Toyota has to pay, close quote. Well, Bury's claim is pure management propaganda, and what's worse, propaganda that's been debunked many times over. As Jonathan Cohn of the New Republic pointed out, average wages for workers at Chrysler, Ford, and General Motors were just $28 per hour as of 2007. The the fanciful figure, according to Cohn, results from a sleight of hand in which the cost of all employer-provided pay and benefits, including health insurance and pensions for retirees, is figured into the hourly pay of current workers. This anti-worker trope has also been debunked by the Center for Automotive Research, Media Matters, the United Auto Workers itself, and two weeks ago on Counterspin by Labor Notes editor Mark Brenner. And as the Wall Street Journal reported, one industry watchdog figured labor costs for the big three are about 200 per car above Toyota's, much less than the $1,500 ABC was touting. Why ABC News, with all its resources, can't tell propaganda from fact is a puzzle, but the answer could have something to do with failing to cast their nets beyond deceptive industry sources. I want to crawl back inside my mother's womb. To start fresh Like a baby In a sink Scrub away All these thoughts that I th-
2: by union activist and writer Greg Shotwell. He worked at General Motors for 30 years before retiring in November. He's a longtime dissident member of the United Auto Workers and co-founder of the website SoldiersofSolidarity.com. Greg Shotwell, uh, tell us what's happening in Michigan and your response to uh, the possibility of letting these auto companies go bankrupt.
3: let these auto companies go bankrupt, it's gonna uh, turn this recession into a depression. Uh, I'm shocked that they're even contemplating this. There's no such thing as an orderly bankruptcy. Uh, You know, millions of people would be affected. I don't mean directly uh, you know, that General Motors only employs 73,000 UAW members, but it's all the suppliers. And those suppliers are going to be affected today. And it's going to start with uh, Chrysler, you know, shutting down, you know, for the next 30 days. Anybody that supplies them in any way is out of work, and they're not uh, getting subpay. Many of these people won't even get unemployment. And then General Motors is shutting down all these plants now, too. Uh, this. Uh, Loan that they're asking for is often mischaracterized as a bailout. It's not a bailout, it's a loan. And it's a result of this credit crisis and some gross mismanagement. I'll concede that. The only people who are not at fault in this are the workers. The workers show up every day, they do their jobs, they do them well, they do them diligently, and they're the only people who uh, should not have to make any concessions. And, in fact, they already have made concessions. And I don't just mean UAW members. Wages have been falling in the United States since 1973. People cannot keep up.
4: Uh, GREG SHOTWELL, one of the things that would happen, obviously, under a, uh, a bankruptcy, whether you call it orderly or, or disorderly, is that uh, the union contracts that already exist would in essence be uh, then uh, nullified, wouldn't they? And, and uh, whatever emerged from bankruptcy would not have to deal with the existing commitments to the workers.
3: Well, bankruptcy is not that simple. Uh, Delphi has been in bankruptcy since October of 2005, and they are still in bankruptcy. It took them almost three years to renegotiate their contracts. So it's—and Delphi is not a tenth uh, the size of the General Motors octopus. Uh, General Motors, uh, at Chrysler, they would be in courts for years. The only people who would make money on this would be attorneys. Um, The danger of this that I see uh, as well is that, you know, in the 90s when uh, the auto companies were making billions of dollars, they were taking profits out of North America and investing them overseas, in Europe and South America and Asia. So there's been a huge transfer of assets overseas. Now those assets would remain protected in bankruptcy. So what in effect they've done is undermined uh, the manufacturing base in the United States so that they could become a major importer to the United States. You see, they already have fuel-efficient, small fuel-efficient cars that they're making in Europe and in Asia and in South America. They're ready for import, and they would like to be like Toyota. Yes, Toyota has plants in the United States, but Toyota imports about 46 percent of all the cars it sells in the United States. That's what General Motors is setting itself up to do, and they're going to use this capitalist disaster to help them wipe out the dealerships and close the plants. And Congress is just going to help them strong arm the unions into giving up uh, any job security or gains. Also, you're right about the bankruptcy, and this is one of their goals, is to wipe out the legacy costs. You know, the people who earned a pension and earned health care and retirement in the past, they would take that away. To me, it's like a 30-year mortgage. I paid my my mortgage every week, and I paid it off. Now that house is mine. Now they want to say, well, we're going to take it back.
4: No. Uh, obviously, there are those who continue to say that the, uh, the labor costs uh, in the auto industry, especially in the big three, are, are way out of whack. Uh, and could you talk, for those who are not familiar, with uh, how this uh, misrepresentation of what the, uh, the labor costs really are uh, of today's workforce uh, among the big three uh, has, been, uh, uh, has been created?
3: There's a good reason that the plants, the transplants in the South, have not been organized. And that's mainly because they make as much or more money as organized workers. And that was a strategy that the Japanese plants did on purpose because they didn't want the plants organized. So they pay as much. The real difference is in the what they owe the retirees, what they call the legacy cost. Now, you'll hear in the media, they'll say uh, GM workers get $73 an hour in Toyota workers only get $45 an hour. They arrive at that $73 an hour by tacking on the cost of all the retirees onto the active worker. This is fraudulent bookkeeping. This is essentially a Ponzi scheme wherein the, uh, the, the old investors are paid off. By the new investors. In other words, the older uh, investors, the retirees, their uh, pay, their pension, and health care comes from the new investors, the workers. Um, I heard Keith Oberman compare it to saying the average wage in America, and then you would add on everybody who's collecting Social Security or pensions. It's really preposterous. On top of that, I want to emphasize this I earned my pension while I was working not somebody else. The guy working today isn't earning my pension. I already earned that. General Motors should have taken that money, set it aside, put it in a trust if they didn't do that then they've committed a malfeasance. That's their responsibility. Also when I was working they charged the customer more money based on the fact based on their excuse that we have to pay more for this worker because of health care and pension and his retirement. So we have to charge the customer more whether that was 1980 or 1990. They raised those prices. What did they do with that money. They didn't apparently didn't put it in the trust. But they did, and this is a fact, they've invested largely overseas. General Motors and Ford, they have more plants overseas than they have in the United States. They're ready to become major importers to the United States and dump all their responsibilities to the people who made those profits.
5: In a
1: foreign place the saving grace was the feeling that it was a Simon the yes.
2: about the city of Detroit view the American auto mecca as a city that's lost its way. Drive down the Chrysler Freeway, which cuts through the city's heart, and you see wave after wave of rotted out, burned out homes that one fireman compared to neighborhoods of broken teeth. Driving us was arson investigator Steve Varnes.
5: Back in the day, Detroit had the most single-family dwellings Uh, Of any city in the country and uh, now we're still the same size 137 miles uh, which is roughly the size of San Francisco Boston and the island of Manhattan inside the city limits and uh, as our homes are continually uh, destroyed either by neglect abandonment or fires right now we're left with vacant
3: land
2: There's no way a million people are going to come back to repopulate those neighborhoods. Detroit's population has fallen from 2 million 50 years ago to 870,000 today. Detroit is going to look different in the future. Apart from the neighborhoods, Detroit is a mausoleum of enormous empty auto plants that need new life. The Russell Industrial Center is one of them, a behemoth of the building. It draws dreamers, and it was designed by one, Albert Kahn, the architect of Detroit, as he was called a century ago. On the top floors of the Russell, artists reinvent everything from industrial fans to car parts. 20,000 square feet can be had for peanuts. Here, we meet up with Robin Boyle in the cavernous street market on the first floor. We're surrounded by giant mushroom pillars eight stories high.
6: It, it almost feels medieval because mm-hmm. when you stand in the middle of it, you're surrounded by these ramparts of, of, of a concrete building that you can imagine was buzzing with activity 40 years ago, uh, but is now very gradually coming back as part of what we, we, we like to call in Detroit the new economy.
2: Boyle, who's originally from Scotland, is chairman of geography and urban planning at Wayne State University. He wants to get Detroit thinking about what it means to be a city in the 21st century, especially one that was such an icon of the past.
6: Detroit now has at least three meanings, possibly four. Detroit is a city where we are. Uh, Detroit means the automobile industry, and which is often the headline, Detroit doesn't get bailout. But the third definition of Detroit is now for a city that is Part of a mid-20th century model of industrial and economic development that has moved on. We are a poor city trying to support the infrastructure of a city that needs 2 million well-paid people with their families in the city of Detroit, and they've gone.
2: Boyle does have a fourth possible definition for Detroit, and it's not one he wants to realize. A place you pass by. You can't save every neighborhood. What's needed, he says, are thoughtful visions of what makes a good neighbourhood and a rearrangement for the land no longer used in traditionally urban ways.
6: We've often used a village uh, metaphor. Wouldn't it be good if we could reconstruct the village Mm -hmm. around the school, the church, Mm -hmm. the housing, and maybe a little bit of retail? Once you've got these villages identified and you're beginning to focus activities into them, what do you do with the rest of the real estate? What do you do? with more than a third of the city that's no longer being used. We don't really have a clear image in our mind as to what to do with it. We've talked about urban farming. Some cities are discussing opening up the old creeks and riverbeds that were covered over. These are all ideas that should be looked at seriously.
7: We we see ourselves, and I see myself, as leading the charge for a reimagined Detroit.
2: If Boyle's is big picture, top-down restructuring, and macro, Mike Wimberly's vision is bottom-up and micro. He's the executive director of Friends of Detroit and Tri-County. His mission is to reclaim a blighted commercial district on the city's east side, and he's bought up a few square city blocks, rechristening it, the Hope District. He's inside his own building, a former meatpacking plant. He now calls it Club Technology.
7: We've got people working on computers, upgrading the computers, and this whole building, 23,000 square feet, is hardwired for the internet, and then we've got wireless fidelity for about a mile outside this building. And then we have Carrie Anderson over here sewing clothes.
2: And outside on the streets, they've painted murals for the Museum of Hip, another called Little Egypt, and a design for a three wheeled neighborhood bike delivery system Wimberly calls the Hustler Aughty. Wimberly's grafted his own vision onto classic dictums from urban thinkers. Think locally, it's Detroit's new vibe.
7: You don't dare move from your development until you complete one block, so it's block by block by block. So as we go down the street, you'll see more of the fruit trees that we planted. And one of the things that we've noticed from doing these green space is that Oh, there's been an uptick in civility. People are a lot more civil since we started this action, and some neighborhood landowners have started to fix up their homes. Oh, hey, Invincible. You too. Hey, Starlet. Thank you.
2: Mike Wimberly greets two young women, both of them community organizers and both of them hip-hop artists. Starlet Lee is 20. Invincible, as she calls herself, is 27. Now, this is one of the many places where Detroit, whatever you've heard, has some enviable synergy. It isn't only academics or developers trying to reimagine the city. It's people like these two young women, Invincible's already reimagined herself, Born in Israel, she's come a long way to these streets and started her own record label,
8: Emergence. For me, I feel like, you know, we have to reimagine what a city looks like. You know, right now people look at every city as needing to be a high-density space. So here in Detroit, being, you know, no, we're not no longer even a metropolis, you know, and so we have an opportunity to, to rethink, you know. You, you wanted to speak about that? Yeah, um, everybody knows Detroit's been burned down. You know, a few times. And I was, was, yeah, in the history. And I was using the term deforestation that, you know, once you burn something down, everything native comes back. Um, I think that's what's happening now with Detroit. And now it's time for, you know, everything that's native to come
2: back and, you know, restart all over again. Starlet Lee knows about starting over again. She grew up with her grandfather and brothers and sisters. Then last year, her grandfather started sending checks to magazine sweepstakes. Now the home is gone, and she and her siblings scattered. But she's going to college soon, and writing rhymes. Invincible is her mentor, and she's a master at adapting the material at hand. And Detroit gives Invincible a lot of material.
8: Locusts and buzzers circle and hover above the abandoned houses shattered windows with the crooked shutters Cross the street, construct
2: a cookie-cutter condominium Line of wood, wood it's the prime meridian Invincible, Invincible thinks music has always functioned as a remedy for Detroit's problems. This is, after all,
8: Motown. To me, a lot of Detroit musicians and artists, you know, we don't necessarily have an overt political message in all of our music. I mean, I tend to be more overly political than most artists, but still, I think all of us have a way of slipping the medicine in.
2: Slipping the medicine in and getting better.
8: Detroit's official motto on our city The flag and all that is it will rise again from the ashes and that's something that you know we really look to is the concept of the phoenix and the city really rebuilding itself
2: that motto goes all the way back to 1805 in full it says we hope for better things it will arise from the ashes of course everyone knows it's not just about hope but that's a good place to lay a foundation then you plan
8: it's worth killing us but we still got resilience
3: I think that we need to advocate for a national industrial policy that supports and sustains the expansion rather than the destruction of the middle class. And I would advocate for a policy that strengthens our economy, our national security, and and makes uh, the dream of a higher standard standard of living attainable for a a wider number of citizens. Um, You know, the working class is the backbone of this nation. And I think that we need to strengthen the American worker. I would like to see, first and foremost, that we have national health care, because this is the one solution that would help everyone. It would help the employers. It would help the employees. It would help the consumers. And that is the biggest factor that uh, takes away our competitiveness. Uh, That's the one factor that would level the playing field because all of our competitors have national health care and stronger uh, pension systems in their country, and by pension I mean government pension, so that when Toyota, you know, uh, imports all these cars, they're not paying for health care. They're not paying for the pensions on those employees are working overseas.
2: This is very interesting. Some people have called GM a healthcare company that makes cars, and that's saying that they're building plants in Ontario because Canada has single payer healthcare.
3: Yeah, this is the biggest advantage. They they complain that they're paying $1,500 per car, when and that cost includes all of the retirees. You know, they are one of the largest insurance companies in the United States. General Motors isn't just an automaker. You know, they're a real estate agent. They're they're a bank. You know, they're an insurance company. Uh, they have a piece in every uh, every square of the capital. They
1: pay board. more for health care than
2: steel.
3: Yes, yes. And, you know, furthermore, we need, you know, these companies, and and I think there is going to be a lot more pressure on this, but, you know, Congress acts like they had no responsibility. If Congress see, we're the only country in the world that subsidizes outsourcing of our jobs. Other countries subsidize research and development, and they erect trade barriers to protect their basic industries. What we did was uh, we do not subsidize research and development, and we subsidize outsourcing. Those are other things that need to be changed.
4: Uh Schau, Well, one of the things that you raise in some of the articles you've written is uh, that there's a lot of attention placed on, again, labor costs, but that the actual production workers uh, for the big three, their salaries represent about 10 percent of the cost of a car, while the— the the money spent for supervisors and management represents 20 percent of the cost of a car, uh, but we rarely get any attention on that aspect of the compensation.
3: No, that you know, we we all the media and Congress uh, really look at UAW wages, and this just shows their bias. Um, but you know, the, these facts I got from uh, uh, the book "Fat and uh, Mean" by uh, Frank Gordon, and uh, he points out how, that the United States actually has you know like three or four times as many. Supervisors and monitors, as uh, Germany or Japan, that we waste a lot more money uh, on management. Uh, but you know the the actual labor costs. Uh, you know this is another aspect I think that people don't uh, people don't understand. I understand what, why, but. Our productivity really should justify a raise. And when I say that, in 1992, you know, they say that they they justify all this because uh, we're losing market share. Well, the, the market has gotten bigger. The pie is bigger. But General Motors is selling as many cars. And the notion that they don't like, people don't like GM cars belies the fact that they've sold more cars than Toyota, in 1992, GM had 34% of the U.S. market. This is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And they produced 4.4 million cars. Now, at that time, GM's hourly employment was 265,000. In 2005, the market share had fallen to about 8%. But the, uh, they had produced the same level of cars, 4.5 million with 111,000 workers with 154,000 workers less they produce the same amount of cars they lost market share but they still produce the same number of cars their productivity has doubled so this would ju- this in normal times when your productivity goes up that that means you deserve an annual improvement factor a raise we've got experienced just the opposite The only reason that that auto workers make what seems to be a higher wage than non-union workers is that we have a cost of living adjustment. We won that back in 1970. But we often do not get any raise at all. And in um, the best years, we only get a 3% raise. But it's the cost of living that we have that is the difference between union and non-union.
1: there's no one win the good war, there's no one right of arms or a single side.
5: Today's story is called, Minds in the Toilet, There's a Sewage Crisis, So Hold Your Nose and Think Hard, and it's written by Johann Hari. Every day, you handle the deadliest substance on earth. It's a weapon of mass destruction, festering beneath your fingernails. In the past 10 years, it has killed more people than all the wars since Adolf Hitler rolled into one. In the next four hours, it will kill the equivalent of two jumbo jets full of kids. It's not anthrax or plutonium or uranium. Its name is shit, and we're in the middle of a shitstorm. In the West, our ways of discreetly whisking this weapon away are in danger of breaking down, and one quarter of humanity hasn't ever used a functioning toilet yet. The story of civilization has been the story of separating you from your waste. British investigative journalist Rose George's stunning and nauseating new book opens by explaining that a single gram of feces can contain 10 million viruses, 1 million bacteria, 1,000 parasite cysts, and 100 worm eggs. Accidentally ingesting this cocktail causes 80% of all the sickness on Earth. I once had a small taste of the problem. A few years ago, I was trudging up a hill in Caracas, Venezuela, through a vast barrio cobbled together from tin and mud and leftover plastic, when I saw a plastic bag filled with feces hurtling toward me. It splattered all over my chest and into my mouth. This wasn't an attack on a gringo intruder. In many of the slums that scar South America, there are no sewers, so the only way to dispose of your excrement is to squat over a bag and throw. It's called the helicopter toilet. Today, 2.6 billion people live like this. Four in ten people have no access to any latrine, toilet, bucket, or box. Nothing, George explains. In an epic work of reportage, taking her from the sewers of London to the shores of Africa to the bowels of China, George investigates the slow road away from the shit-smeared existence. Her journey opens by tramping down at midnight into the place where that road began, the sewers of London. This city beneath the city can be deadly. Clouds of hydrogen sulfide, the sewer gas that forms when sewage decomposes, will suffocate you if you get caught in its stinking clouds. Before these tunnels were built, London had on-site sanitation, this is a polite way of saying people shat in a covered-up, set-aside space, and the feces were collected and sold to farmers as manure. But in the early 19th century, London's population rapidly doubled, and the city's buildup of excrement became unsustainable. The cost of having your private cesspool emptied spiked to a shilling, twice the average worker's daily wage. So people took to emptying their cesspools into the Thames, which soon ran brown. By 1848, cholera outbreaks were killing 14,000 people a year, and then came the great stink of 1858. London reeked so badly, people were vomiting in the streets. The drapes of the House of Commons were soaked with chloride in a failed attempt to disguise the stench. At last, the order came to find a better way, and one of Rose George's heroes entered history. Joseph Bazalgette was the chief engineer of the Metropolitan Board of Works, and along with Hamburg's municipality, he pioneered the great life-saving urban sewers of our time. His sewers have saved more lives than any other public works, George notes with pride. But there is a catch. Much as we want to flush and forget, the excrement does not disappear. Ninety percent of the world's sewage ends up untreated in oceans, rivers, and lakes. The costs of Joseph Bazelgette's invention at the other end of the pipe are now becoming inescapable. Much of our sewage is pumped, barely treated, into the oceans, where vast dead zones are emerging, killed by our germs. The rest infects water closer to home. For example, in 1993, an outbreak of shitborne cryptosporidium in Milwaukee killed 400 people and made 400,000 sick. It turned out the city was pumping its treated sewage, actually treated for only some toxins, not others, into Lake Michigan, and then slurping its drinking water out the other end. In her search for answers to what to do with our swill, George lyrically dives into the toilet bowl, sloshing about like Gene Kelly singing in the rain. "'Of all the people of the world, the Chinese are probably most at home with their excrement,' she explains. "'They defecate openly.' chatting away with their friends in toilets with no dividers. Perhaps for this reason, the Chinese have been more creative than anyone else with their crap. Since the 1930s, they've been turning it into electricity. More than 15 million rural Chinese homes have been provided with biogas, a large, oxygen-less digester into which they empty their toilet pans. The organic matter ferments there and belches out a gas that can be converted into electricity. The gas also makes stoves go. It may make us wretch, but it saves Chinese women from the back-breaking labor of cutting down firewood, and they love it. Is this our future? Alas, its potential spread is limited. If you don't add ample animal feces too, the machines don't run for long. Is there a way to safely use shit as fertilizer instead? Some U.S. firms thought so when they began to market biosolids, the gunk that's left over after sewage has been treated. But in 1975, the chief of the Environmental Protection Agency's Technology Board of the Hazardous Waste Division reached a horror film conclusion. Transforming waste into fertilizer is the most efficient means, short of eating the sludge, of injecting toxic substances directly into the human body. Almost all European countries have now banned it. Meanwhile, the question of where to put the sewage becomes even more urgent. Our Western system of sanitation uses vast amounts of two increasingly precious resources, energy and water. It has become a cliché to say the wars of the future will be fought over water due to global warming and a swelling population, but it is true. When water is scarce and costly, our Western model of washing away our waste ceases to make sense. George summarizes our current methods tartly. You take clean drinking water, throw filth into it, and then spend millions to clean it again. One cubic meter of wastewater can pollute ten cubic meters of water, and in a warming world battling for water supplies, that will soon become a ratio we can't afford. Our method is strikingly energy-intensive, too. A sewage plant uses up to eleven and a half watts of energy per head, requiring an entire coal-fired power station to run just four sewage treatment facilities. So we need a safe alternative to plopping and peeing into water. But where is it? George talks to environmentalists who see a future where instead of controlling pollution after it happens, we prevent it in the first place by some sort of source separation. This eco-sewage has two prongs. First, we have to change our toilets and our sewers so they have two streams, one for urine and another for excrement. Although it's counterintuitive, Urine actually contaminates sewer water much more severely than feces do. If it ran into a separate system, we would slash water use by an extraordinary 80%. The second prong is harder to imagine. As in pre-sewer London, we would defecate into a tank, and our shit would sit there, waiting for collection. Feces take a strange and irrational physical journey because they take a strange and irrational journey through our minds. But if we're going to deal with the coming shit crises, or solve the one killing kids in the developing world today, we need to overcome an aversion that can seem hardwired into us by our evolution and intensified by culture. The most encouraging revelation of George's book is that even the aspects of defecating that seem eternal and unchangeable are actually recent innovations. In Japan 60 years ago, everybody squatted communally over a dry pit. Today, Nobody does. In private, they use techno toilets that wash and dry your anus while simultaneously playing music and heating the seat. Think of it as the eye toilet, or Toilet 3.0. Toilet culture can change, and fast. Neither of my parents had a toilet in the house when they were children, and thought the idea was vaguely disgusting. Defecating? Next to the kitchen? Another toilet-tide shift may happen in my lifetime. Will the drying up of water supplies and a sewage system with nowhere left to spew its waste force us to regress to earlier, dirtier worlds? Or will we begin a transition to greener options before the system breaks down and begins to spew our filth back at us? It's a sign of how superb George's book is that I'm now bubbling with questions about the future of feces. The Big Necessity belongs in a rare handful of studies that take a subject that seems fixed and familiar and taboo and makes us understand it's historically contingent and dazzlingly intriguing. Jessica Mitford did it with her classic study, The American Way of Death. Michel Foucault did it with Madness and Civilization. Rose George has produced their equal, a gleaming toilet manifesto for humankind. It could end with an oddly rousing cry, borrowed from another manifesto long ago. Shitters of the world, unite. You have nothing but your diarrhea and your cholera and your dying oceans to lose. The president-elect surely will have his hands full when he takes office. And some food lovers want to make sure that his belly is full, too, full of organic fruits and vegetables. They are petitioning the next president to plant a new organic garden on the White House grounds. And as NPR's Brian Reed reports, these agitators have come up with some peculiar ways of getting attention.
9: Students at Watkins Elementary School in southeast D.C. have seen their fair share of school buses. But they've never seen a bus quite like
1: this.
9: (laughs) That's right, an upside-down school bus. Well, it's two buses, really. A right-side-up one with another flipped over and fused to the top. Four tires stick up in the air like the legs of a cow lying on its back. And in the roof, right where the second bus's engine would have been, is a small vegetable garden. People have just kind of gravitated towards this upside-down school bus just because they want to know what it is, so it opens it up to potential for having a conversation. That's Daniel Bowman-Simon, and the conversation he wants to have is about the state of the American diet. He and his friend Casey Gustavaro founded the White House Organic Farm Project, the Who Farm. Since August, they've driven their bus to 25 states, spreading the gospel of eating local and eating organic.
3: We need to be more holistic in the way that we view health in this
9: country, and a lot of it comes down to eating healthier. You know, people who eat healthier have you know, don't get sick as much. For the Who Farm guys and other sustainable food junkies, eating locally grown produce is not just about health. They say it's also about cutting down the amount of fuel we use to transport food, about communities congregating around a garden, about rediscovering America's agricultural roots. Daniel Simon.
3: If we have arguably the most famous person in the country eating off the most visible piece of land in the country, which is a piece of land that we all share collectively, that could inspire immense changes.
9: As it turns out, the Who farmers are not the only grassroots gardeners trying to get the president-elect's ear. It might sound a bit trivial to some people, the idea of a garden on the White House lawn, but it's not. It's something that would speak to millions of people in the United States and even more people around the world who look at gardens and small subsistence farms as a way of making a living, and as a way of putting good food on the table. Roger Jwarin directs Kitchen Gardeners International. In February, he launched an online campaign called Eat the View, the view being, of course, the pristine White House grounds. Like the Who farm, Eat the View has an online petition. Together, both campaigns have collected about 18,000 signatures. At one point, Dwarin even raised money for his nonprofit by selling imaginary plots of the White House lawn on eBay. But not everyone is so supportive.
3: I think the idea to put organic farm on the White House lawn is as shallow a stunt as is the intellectual rigor of the organic movement as a whole.
9: Alex Avery is the author of The Truth About Organic Food, and director of research at the Center for Global Food Issues. He says that feeding the world's population organically, without synthetic fertilizer, would mean plowing down millions of square miles of wildlife habitat.
3: It would create no solutions. It would, in fact,
9: create nothing but problems. Not to mention that some of what the activists are proposing may already be going on. Tomatoes, peppers, squashes, cucumbers, these sorts of things are actually grown grown on the roof of the White House. Walter Scheib was the White House executive chef for 11 years under Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. He says people might be surprised at some of the sustainable practices already in place at the White House. There's always an assumption that uh, something isn't happening already, but Mrs. Bush is adamant about organics. If anything was available as an organic, it was to be the default. Still, the Who Farm and Eat the View are petitioning for something a bit more ambitious and more visible, and they find reasons to be optimistic. Famous foodies like Chef Alice Waters and best-selling author Michael Pollan are calling for a White House garden. And the students at Watkins Elementary seem pretty excited, too.
1: want to go online and sign your
9: petition if my mom lets me. Okay, awesome. Yes, ask her for permission. Bye, now all they need is for Barack Obama to get on the
1: bus. Bending spoons with my mind, manifesting men of all kinds. But oh, how I struggled in vain to solve this riddle with my brain. When the answer's in
3: my hand, so I'm gonna move you
1: around. Got to turn.
5: Today's story is called Robots, Not Roads. The Obama stimulus package should be spent on transformative investments, not bridges and buildings. And it's written by Elliot Spitzer. The incoming Obama administration and Congress are planning a huge fiscal stimulus package. They hope that such a stimulus will catalyze an economic turnaround and be a cornerstone of a new New Deal. If the early reports are reliable, the stimulus will include a huge tax cut and will fund projects like road building and bridge repair, laying the infrastructure foundation for the economy of the future. Yet two huge problems with this approach must be confronted. First, the capacity of even the U.S. government to affect the overall global economy is limited. Suppose the package is $800 billion over two years. $400 $400 billion is less than 1% of the global economy and a mere 3% of the U.S. economy. In relative terms, 400000000000 billion isn't all that much more than the $152 billion spent on the 2008 stimulus, which had nary an impact on the economy. Here's where the New Deal analogies are instructive. The New Deal probably didn't pull us out of the Depression. World War II did that. What the New Deal did was redefine the social contract, perhaps just as important an outcome. The ultimate significance of the Obama package may be not its short-term demand-side impact, but rather its capacity to transform our economy and, in turn, some of the fundamental underpinnings of our society. This introduces the second major problem. The -the off-the-shelf infrastructure projects that can be funded immediately and provide immediate demand-side stimulus are almost by definition not the transformative investments we really need. Paving roads, repairing bridges that need refurbishing, and accelerating existing projects are all good and necessary, but not transformative. These projects, by and large, are building or patching the same economy with the same flaws that got us where we are. Our concern should be that as we look for the next great infrastructure project to transform our economy, we might rebuild the Erie Canal and find ourselves a century behind technologically. This moment presents the administration with what is likely to be its best and perhaps only opportunity to have essentially unlimited capital, both fiscal and political, to spend on a transformative economic agenda. It is a unique moment to build a new foundation, It would be wise to ensure that a significant portion of the stimulus package is spent on new investments that may not be quite as ready to go, but are surely more important to our long-term economic viability. There are many such critical investments, but here are a few for consideration. These are not, of course, the only ideas, and they may not be the best ideas, but they should spur discussion of how to use the fiscal stimulus, not just to put people to work, but also to build the -the over-the-horizon projects that will set the stage for the next great American economic miracle. In the energy arena, two investments are critical. The first is smart meters. These would permit with a smart grid time-of-day pricing for all consumers with potentially double-digit reductions in peak demand, significant cost savings, and consequential remarkable energy and environmental impacts. These declines in peak demand would translate into dramatic reduction in the number of new power plants. The problem with installation of smart meters has been both the cost and often state-by-state regulatory hurdles. Now is the moment to sweep both aside and transform our entire electricity market into a smart market. Second, the most significant hurdle to beginning the shift to non-gasoline-based cars is the lack of an infrastructure to distribute the alternative energy, whether it's electricity for plug-in hybrids or natural gas or even hydrogen. Once that infrastructure is there, it's said, consumers will be able to opt for the new technology. If that is so, let us build that infrastructure now, transform existing gas stations so they can serve as distribution points for natural gas or hydrogen, build plug-in charging centers at parking lots, and design units for at-home garages. These would indeed be transformative investments. In healthcare, everybody agrees that electronic record keeping is a universal win. Air is reduced public health gains from the ability to know what is actually being delivered, a dramatic improvement in primary care. But again, the cost has been prohibitive because the upfront expenditure is enormous and the benefits are long-term and hard to measure. We should condition state receipt of Medicaid bailout funds on a new infrastructure of electronic medical records. No single health care step would be more transformative. America lags the world in Internet service and access. Our Internet backbone is worse than that of competing nations. We should spend to upgrade it. In education, just as much a part of our infrastructure as bridges and roads, here's a small investment that's one of my favorites. Provide funding for robotics teams at every school. If you ever want to see intellectual competition in the arena that matters today, technological wizardry, visit the robotics competitions that now exist in some schools. Make these competitions as universal as football. Make it cool to design the next cutting-edge video game or iPod. These are just a few possible infrastructure investments. The list is long, and the right infrastructure could provide the basis for a redirected economy long term the most important investments are not on the easy list of off-the-shelf projects yes good roads and bridges are important but investing in the necessary public goods to support a post-hydrocarbon information-based economy is a much better choice than using the stimulus to patch up the old economy
8: Life, it's ever so strange it's so the change think that you worked it out to throw you
10: Be- before we take another call, what? I- I- I've got a little something I need to get off my chest. Oh, geez. Look, I'm sorry about your car, okay? You were away for the weekend. You weren't using it, and the dog looked like he was housebroken. <laughs> I wasn't talking about that. Oh, well, you weren't? No, but now I know who owes me 100 bucks for cleaning the car. No, I want to talk about the gasoline tax. Oh, no. Again. Don't start with that. Last time you proposed a gas tax, we got 5,000 letters calling us pinkos, commies, morons. Well, we're not pinkos or commies. No, not, we're not. No, not by <laughs> a long show. Morons, well, the, the jury's still out on that. But look, I, I think it's an idea whose time has come. And I know that most politicians have been too wussy to do it. They're all afraid of talking about taxes. But I think the logic of raising the gasoline tax right now is unassailable. Well, you may be right. Well, he, here's how it works. When gasoline was four bucks a gallon, everybody cried, right? Ah, four bucks. Not me. I just siphoned the stuff out of your car. ha! <laughs> <laughs> That's why my mileage went down to <laughs> three miles a gallon. <laughs> Look, gasoline is now less than two bucks a gallon. So there's never been a better time to do this. I mean, if we added a 50 cent national gasoline tax right now, and gas costs say two fifty a gallon. Would that be the end of the world? Was four dollar a gallon gas wasn't the end of the world? Two fifty gas certainly wouldn't be, right? Well, in fact, it might remind people to drive a little less. Exactly. We, we know that the higher the price of gas, I mean, this has been proven in the last few months, the less people drive. You know, they use public transportation, they carpool. Da, 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 they don't the, go to work. <laughs> the more fuel efficient cars they buy, and the more fuel efficient cars get manufactured. Huh. So a gas tax reduces demand for oil, and reduced demand keeps the price low. Right. Supplier and the demander. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone remembers that from Economics 101. But wait, there's more. The gas tax does even more than this. What are you, rumple peel? <laughs> are you selling spray-on hair or what? <laughs> you selling the pocket fisherman? No, no, but I did order that chicken rotisserie thing. Just set it and forget <laughs> it. But I used your credit card. That's good. <laughs> no, no, pay, this is serious. Now, the gas tax does far more than just reduce demand. If we put a 50-cent-a-gallon tax on gasoline, it would generate, you're, you ready? Between yeah. 50 and $100 billion every year the Treasury. Oh, and what's our cut of that? (laughs) (laughs) We we don't get a cut. But the money could be used to help rebuild our crumbling roads and bridges, right? They're in bad shape. And more importantly, to develop new technologies for more fuel efficient cars. Further decreasing demand for oil, the more fuel efficient the cars are, the more the demand goes down, right? Exactly. So this is our way to get on the wagon and stop sending money out of the country to some countries that don't like us too much and achieve energy independence. I mean, that's what we've been talking about for years. We want to achieve energy independence. Well, this is one of the ways you do it well, by developing new technologies. I mean, that's nice and all, but you still have to cut me in on the $50 billion <laughs> if you want me on board. Oh, I do. <laughs> well, here's here's the final piece of the, the puzzle, the, the cherry on the Sunday, so yeah. to speak.
6: Oh, you mean is this is where we
10: get our cut? Oh, bite me, Piston Puss. <laughs> <laughs> no, the other thing that the gas tax revenue could fund is, you ready for this? I think this is, this is the brilliant thing. You're going to love yeah. it. The coup de gras. This would fund high-speed train infrastructure yeah. between major cities. And who would build all of those new high-tech, high-speed trains that we'd need?
6: Uh, the Chinese.
10: (laughs) She's I hadn't thought of the Chinese. Not a bad idea. No! GM and Ford, maybe even Chrysler. We'd help them start mass transit divisions in their companies and convert some of those factories from building inefficient gas hogs, which they're not going to sell, to building those high-speed trains. I mean, the head of Ford used to run Boeing. He's done planes. Automobiles? You think he can't do trains? Frank, this is absolutely brilliant. (sighs) I'm shocked. (laughs) So I'm sick of people whining about a lousy 50 cent a gallon tax on gasoline. Come on. I think the idea's time has come, and I call on all non-wussy politicians, even the wussy ones, to get in line with me and stand with me. I'm calling on the president-elect, too, because our country needs this. Woof! I have spoken. You feel better now? Yes, I do. I do. You want some
0: of the pills you gave me when I used to rant and rave all the time? No, I don't want those
10: (laughs) stinking pills. Hey, by the way, I I should mention, in the interest of full financial disclosure, and I thought I was going to make a killing, so I I, I recently purchased stock in both GM and Ford. You did? You stupid. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I think it's important since you and I have done our fair share of driving down the, 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 their stock price over the years, and deservedly so. They did deserve I it. Thought it was only right in their hour of need that we make this magnanimous gesture and, you know, buy their stock. What about Chrysler? You bought Ford, you bought GM, but not Chrysler. Well, magnanimity has its limits,
1: doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs>
0: thanks for listening everybody now i have good news about the big fundraiser i took part in um, and that i've been talking about obviously Uh, it it happened went off without a hitch last saturday and and if if you recall i set a fundraising goal for myself for a thousand dollars and at the end of it all i came away with a very respectable 940 dollars. absolutely nothing to be ashamed about uh for that and and Uh, You know, a huge, huge, huge chunk of that came from you guys, and I just, you know, really, really appreciate it to everyone who donated. um, You know, it was was amazing show support, and uh, and so I I really appreciate those of you who donated. Uh, Also, though, if you recall from the last episode, I said that if uh, if we reached, or if I reached my fundraising goal, then I'd be more than happy to release horribly, uh, embarrassing and and traumatic photographic evidence of my jump into the water. And, uh, and luckily since I didn't reach my fundraising goal, I don't have to do that anymore. So I also really appreciate those of you who decided not to donate because if you had, we, I probably would have met that goal and you know, it would have just been more work, you know, not to mention embarrassment for me. So, um, so I also appreciate those of you who didn't donate. I will, I'll I'll tell you about it, though. It was, um, you know, the the idea was to jump into the bay in the middle of January, and it was called a polar bear plunge. You jump into really cold water, and it's kind of a crazy thing to do, and so you get people to uh, send money in uh, to to support you in in that. And, you know, a couple of really odd things happened. I mean, first of all, the weather broke. I mean, it's January, out on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, you know, middle of winter, and it had been, you know, in the 30s for weeks leading up to the event. But but the day of, so, something happened. The weather broke 85 degrees outside. You know, I mean, like, we know there's crazy weather going on, but, boy, we did not expect that. 85 degrees, totally sunny. We were all out there in, like, shorts and T-shirts and had to bring sunscreen. It, it was ridiculous. But on top of that, I couldn't, like, I, I'd never heard of anything like this. I've been to this location before. It was cold last year, believe me. And this year, I don't know if some sort of like natural phenomenon, hot springs uh, sort of thing opened up uh, under the water where we were. But the water, again, it was like 85, 90 degrees. Like that's, you know, warmer than a pool. And, uh, you know, it was like approaching hot tub levels of, uh, of warmth in the water. So basically we, we went out you know bathing suits uh s- suntan lotion and lounged on the beach for a couple hours and Decided, well I-, I guess we'll do our <laughs> polar bear plunge and we all jumped in and uh you know swam around for a couple hours because it-, it was uh fantastic so it was a fantastic time had by all uh you know i, I really appreciate everyone who donated for me to uh to go and, and experience that traumatic situation, sorry to disappoint, but uh, you know since I didn't reach my fundraising goal and I don 't have to release any pictures of the event, uh, there's not really any evidence for you guys to to know anything other than what I just said about the event, so you might as well assume that that's what actually happened. Of course, I suppose it's possible I could still reach that fundraising goal uh of $1000 the the links are still up at the homepage of the com. but i you know i'm not particularly worried about it. I, I assume that there just aren't three people out there listening who have $20 so uh you know otherwise they probably al- already would have donated and so i'll i'll never have to release those pictures after all which is uh which is great so that'll be it for today i'm looking forward to not having to talk about fundraisers anymore in the next show so coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, DC, my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. on
1: a sheet. The only maker that she- I'm